This is the FutureX Podcast. In each episode, we interview a platform designer, author, or publisher. They'll talk about how to build online communities that are diverse, welcoming, and safe. Now, here's your host, Lee Schneider. Welcome, everyone, to the FutureX Podcast. I'm Lee Schneider. In today's episode, you'll meet Dr. Sean M. Anderson, author of The Black Athlete Revolt, the sports justice movement in the age of hashtag Black Lives Matter. The book examines athlete activism before and since the BLM movement. Dr. Anderson is an award-winning professor at Loyola Marymount University. As a scholar, he examines how sport has influenced business, politics, and society. He's also the founder of CSR Global Consulting, which assists organizations with their social responsibility initiatives. We'll be talking about athletes and social change, and also about how he's been building community around his book. So your book tells the story of protest and activism historically among black athletes, starting at the beginning, even before athletes with Paul Robeson, but starting with... Althea Gibson, Jackie Robinson, Bill Russell, Muhammad Ali, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, to name just a few. And it traces that history of protest and activism up to the present day. So we have Kaepernick, we have Eric Reed, we have LeBron James. Mm -hmm. And as you wrote in the book, there's kind of an ebb and flow to this through history. The Vietnam War protests were kind of a high point. And then Black Lives Matter really made a difference for yeah. athletes. Why? Why did Black Lives Matter spark the kind of protest that it did and the activism among athletes? What many people probably don't realize is that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is, uh, and particularly as it premiered on Twitter, was 10 years ago. And so uh, we've seen a lot of changes in our society in this decade. And just a few years before, when we had the Great Recession of, of 2008, you know, we saw movements come out like Occupy Wall Street, um, you know, where people were saying no more um, secrecy and no more bureaucracy within organizations. We're going to hold you accountable. And social media, in many ways, became the platform where people were saying, okay, no more. We're going we're gonna to call you out. This is going to be the court of public opinion. And if you don't do what it is that we need you to do, you know, you're going to lose customers. You're going to lose money. You're going to lose all of these things. And so uh, the Black Lives Matter movement sort of brought about this national and eventual global concern about issues such as police brutality, and it eventually morphed into um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and all those things that have never really been brought about and talked about in organizations in times past. And so that platform sort of gave athletes, even high-profile athletes, this sort of catalyst, this sort of revitalization, if you will, to talk about social issues and not get uh, penalized, like say a Muhammad Ali did uh, years before. And so it was the shift in our society, the shift to hold organizations accountable that sort of woke up this new movement. In the book, you do, do a great parallel to help me. It helped me think a lot about the long term. 
connecting Muhammad Ali with Colin Kaepernick. Right. And I started thinking about the differences and the similarities between what they did. They were both protesting, saying no, Ali against the war, mm-hmm. Cap against police brutality and the rights of people of color. And they both paid a price. There right. was a penalty for both. How does that affect what the athlete might or might not do? Do you think that's in the forefront of their mind or it's more like it's time, I have to do this? No, absolutely. It's it's in the forefront um, because today, if you're an athlete who is talking about any issue, whether it's police brutality or um, issues in the educational system, voting, you know, it's a shut up and dribble, shut up and play. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. Stay in your lane, go score and entertain me. <laughs> and mostly the people who say this are, are people who are armchair politicians themselves sitting in their living rooms uh, watching the news and, and sharing their stories. And so the difference between today and the athletes of yesteryear, particularly during the Civil War, uh, was that you got punished like Muhammad Ali. You, you, were, you were basically told you either need to go to prison or mm-hmm. go to war. You didn't have a lot of athletes who followed through with that because they didn't want that punishment to come down on them. You know, we had the 1968 Olympic protests with the Black Power Fist to show solidarity with Muhammad Ali. But then those athletes were then removed from the Olympics, never really to to reach their potential when it came to uh, the type of work you can do after you perform at the Olympics to that degree. And so whereas today, though, you know, it's it's the high profile athletes who have really, you know, stepped in to say, okay, Colin Kaepernick, you were the martyr, but we're going to stand behind you and continue to push and continue Mm -hmm. to talk about the needs of protests. But now to shift the conversation into policy reform and. How can we go into the criminal justice system to make reform? How can we go in to talk about voting? How can we talk about equity? How can we move into the places of ownership and and structural changes? Those are the differences that we're seeing today versus that time before. Because back then, it was a brutal type of punishment that you would receive um, if Hmm. you engaged in that type of activism. So again, athletes now are really trying to change the organizational structure of how things are disseminated and how things are passed down now, which is not perfect, but we are at that point to talk about those things. It's a credibility thing in part, right? Yeah. We're talking about people who maybe were perceived as entertainers. You're just there to, you know, shut up and dribble, just play. But then you have people like LeBron James or Magic Johnson who are there wealthy, they're accomplished business people, they're global personalities. Mm -hmm. Does that all contribute to the credibility factor? Or do people silo it and say, well, LeBron's a really good businessman, but you know, he bought a Starbucks and he's doing Starbucks, blah, blah, blah. But he he doesn't know anything about social justice. I mean, can people really make that argument anymore? Yeah, no, no, see, that's, that's a great point. You know, uh, 
we all know of the, the history of Magic Johnson, what he had to go through post his career. But like you say, he's built something massive relative to the business world. And he's involved in everything from movies to even other sports. Right. Braun is on that same trajectory. But here's the thing. You know, when you're talking about equality and you're talking about um, all of the things that black folk and people of color are trying to fight for in general, you know, it all stems from what was supposed to be done after the Civil War of 1865, where everybody was supposed to get their fair share of land and build up from there. And so today, you know, we're seeing athletes kind of showcasing what can be done with their careers post, you know, their playing time, that you can build something legitimate. You can build something that's helping other communities, bringing other people up. You know, we're talking about LeBron's um, school. That's a high ranking school that's getting kids into college. You know, um, Magic Johnson, again, has his hands in everything. And so that's also bringing about the socioeconomic aspect of sport that has been so critical in need over the last years. We're talking about the ownership of sport leagues being predominantly white. But now you're seeing athletes say, okay, I've played. Now, why don't I make my way into ownership? Why don't I make my way into media and controlling the media that's going out? So it's, it's something that's necessary, even though people <laughs> will still critique them as these dumb jocks who just have people in their corner who are pushing their agenda. But no, these athletes are showing that they are intelligent and that they are capable of making a difference, even beyond their playing time. Someone like LeBron, or for that matter, Magic, or Kareem, these are heroic figures, almost bigger than life. Right. They seem like giants, not mm -hmm. just figured, not just literally, but, you know, figuratively. But are we seeing a lot of athletes not only looking to them, but just looking into themselves and saying, you know, it's time. It's time for more black leadership in sports. It's time for fair hiring practices. Right. It's time for a lot of injustice that I've seen to stop. Do we see a lot of athletes thinking that way? Or do they need permission? You know, do they need, you know, the billion dollar deal? Yeah. You know, um, it, it's funny because when you're going back into the dormancy of athlete activism, say late 80s, all of the 90s, early 2000s, you know, there was this common law practice of understanding that um, I'm an athlete. The, the, the NBA, the NFL, they're making more money now than ever before through television mm -hmm. rights and things like that. I don't want to get in trouble because I don't want to lose out on that money. And the common law practice from the owners and commissioners was like, you should be happy that you're in this league. Take this money, make yourself money, make us more money, and just be quiet. You know, we take that story back to uh, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, who I would say was the Colin Kaepernick before Colin Kaepernick, who in the 90s spoke out um, in his silent protest about police brutality by turning his back 
to the flag when uh, the national anthem was played. And then David Stern, who was the commissioner of the NBA at that time, was, was essentially like, you're out of here. No more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, it took a turn in society outside of sport in order for these athletes to come back and say, okay, now I'm obligated to make a change. It, I, I, it's acceptable to say no more to the things that will not build us up uh, because society has named it so from the Black Lives Matter movement to Me Too and all of the other movements that have been established over the last 10, 15 years. And so it's it's been a domino effect um, that has been, again, something that's great. Um, these athletes are calling out a lot of problems. They haven't been perfect um, because I, I would tend to always say that these athletes need a fact checker with them on everything that they do, everything that they have a concern <laughs> about, uh, so that this person can go and check and say, okay, is this legitimate? Is this real? Should I do this? And then go forward with it. But yeah, no, the, the obligation to not only be an athlete, but an obligation to better society is now a part of the agenda. And then it's also what I call the sport justice movement at this point. It seems to be of a piece. And what I mean by that, you could look at some corporations, and we'll talk about a few like Nike in a moment, but you could look at some corporations who talk about giving back and they give 0.1% or 1% of their huge profits to social justice. But there seems to be, it seems to me that there are athletes who are, it's 100%. Like, that's what they're doing. Yes, they're playing the game, and yes, they're being paid to play the game, but their reason is social justice, and they want to change a lot, not just the composition of the front office, but the way people are treated, the education that people get. I don't really have a question there. It's just kind of a mindset that feels different to me than just, well, I'm going to give 1%, or I'm just yeah. going to help a little bit here. This is not that. It's the whole deal. Yeah. You know, it's it's... Taking it back to, let's specify with the Kaepernick situation and when he, you know, sat and then uh, then eventually took the knee because he sat first, you know, and then when Nike came on board and said, okay, we need to feature you in a commercial. Whereas Nike, Under Armour, Adidas, you know, all of these other companies in years past never really got on the side of justice, if you will. Um, they may have made a human interest story, but not particularly something mm-hmm. of this magnitude. Um, it, it makes people question, okay, are they doing this uh, to really help in society and the issues that they're facing? Or right. is this just a bunch of PR lip service? Now, one could say, you know, absolutely, this is a bunch of PR lip service. Activism is a hot topic right now. And you're going to do whatever you need to do to you know, make money. Um, so that's, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is like, finally, you've stepped up and, and have put activism and social justice into your bottom line of operation. So it's, it's good and bad that you have to weigh with it. What will happen is we have to see how the next few years uh, mm-hmm. will come about. What other type of platforms will you associate your organization with? Um, if a partnership with a team 
it's detrimental to the overall cause of social justice when you back away from that team, when you back away from that athlete or whoever it is that you're sponsoring, that remains to be seen. But again, this is where we are with these conversations on uh, reform and social change. It's, it's not going to be overnight. We're going to have to wait a couple of years, but that's where we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, too, of athletes like Naomi Osaka or Paula Badosa, who have spoken out about depression, mm-hmm. a taboo subject at one time. Yep. But their sponsors, as far as I know, haven't deserted them. They haven't become taboo people. They've become spokespersons mm-hmm. for this mental state, the difficult aspects of doing a sport like mm-hmm. tennis. Do you think Nike and the NFL and, the, you know, the the big organizations who do give some money, not a lot, but are giving more. Do you think those big organizations have suddenly realized, you know, most of the people playing these sports are black and that is bad optics? Or is it coming from something more sincere? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, so when I'm watching an NBA game, for example, and I'm watching Charles Barkley talk on NBA on TNT, he mentioned something that I'm quite sure many people think when it comes to mental health and the issues that many of these athletes face. So in his conversation, <laughs> he was talking about um, the NBA players who are saying that they are depressed and they have to deal with a lot of stress when it comes to fans, when it comes to their families, all of these things. And media and all of that. And and Charles Barkley said, "Um, look, you're getting paid $25 million a year to play a silly game of basketball. All of the other stuff that you're dealing with is just a part of the territory when it comes to your salary. So you should be thankful in many ways that, you know, that's the only thing you have to deal with relative to the game. But, you know, again... He's talking about a time where he played where athletes probably still had a lot of mental health issues, but it was very taboo. No one wanted to talk about it. Um, But we are definitely in the need to focus on the mental health issues of athletes. Um, You know, for example, when an athlete gets injured and they, Mm. they feel like they need to still compete, so they will put whatever drug in their body to help sustain themselves. And we have the issues. We saw the DeMar Hamlin case uh, back in the NFL season, literally have a heart attack on the field. Mm. And the league was trying to determine whether or not it still wanted to play. And so um, the, the, the question now becomes not if mental health in sports is necessary, but how can we get involved with the, plethora of issues when it comes to mental health. You know, we think about Simone Biles in the the Olympics. She couldn't participate. You know, she talked about mental health. But before she even explained everything that went wrong with her, you had the whole world coming against her. You need to compete. You're representing us. Mm -hmm. So we are at a space and at a time where that's necessary. I have uh, colleagues who are sports psychologists for major college basketball teams who talk about all of the, the, the pressures they receive from the, not only the coach, but from their biological families who mm-hmm. are hoping that they make it to the pros so that they can be supported. So it's a lot going on um, in that realm. And it's definitely needed. Um, 
I think, again, players like Charles Barkley are focused on the 90s and yesteryear, but this is a new age. And I think if athletes' mental health can become a priority, you know, we'll be able to see them improve as players and, you know, develop an identity beyond the sport once they retire. Yeah, there is that kind of era of just just play, suck it up, deal with it. A lot of athletes play in pain. It's part of what they do. And I wonder, since you were mentioning sports psychologists, how much is that a challenge to overcome in the sense that you're playing in pain, but there's also systemic racism. There's also inequality. There's lots of pain out there. There's the depression that's in in yourself and there's the depression that's in the world. Do sports psychologists have to deal with that with their clients and, and the people they're helping? All the time. Uh, you know, um, I, we even take it back to the example of the NFL when just recently, like within the last couple of years, they got rid of that policy that basically denounced the intelligence of black athletes, uh, particularly when it comes to them getting drafted at the quarterback position. So, you know, the NFL has been around for years. And I'm quite sure that that concept of the intelligence factor of athletes has been there for quite a while. And to get rid of that recently shows the the inequities uh, within the game. Now, you're talking about um, sports psychologists who. Let's take it to the college level. You know, you meet the athletes who are five o'clock in the morning workouts, uh, have their breakfast, have their meals, work out again everything is structured around the game and not really what it is that they want to accomplish as a student, you know, and they are pretty much picked apart and you follow this rule. And most of the players are not starters, right? Hmm. You have the the ones who are starters who are taken care of, but then what's up with everybody else? You know, Hmm. there's competition, there's envy, there is, uh, the one-sided relationship that some of these athletes may feel they have with their coaches. And so um, the necessity of psychology um, shows itself a lot because we've seen, even over the past couple of years, how many of these student athletes have taken their own life, for example, because of all the pressures that are happening. Um, And then you take it into the pros where where (laughs) if you get drafted your whole family feels like they have to come along with you. And when you mm-hmm. don't want to give them that, they, I, I, I've seen situations where parents have sued their children because the parent will say, I took care of you for 18 years of your life. You paying me back is payment for that, those 18 years. When that child didn't ask to be here, that, you're a parent. That's what you're supposed to do. So there are these things and these factors that, Many people don't see what they do see is the five year, $100 million contract. Mm -hmm. Okay. But at the end of the day, after taxes, after paying your agents, that hundred thousand probably dwindles down to 30. (laughs) So, you know, I've, I've seen and talked to a lot of psychologists who say these are the pressing issues. Um, and that's all in addition to, having to be a solid teammate, having to put yourself 
on the back burner to support the team. And we also don't see that case all the time. So sports psychologists, again, many people don't realize this is a burgeoning field and they're so Mm. needed. Um, There's even a colleague I work with at my university who right now is the head psychologist for the NBA's mental health programs. And he talks a lot about what the NBA is trying to do, how they're trying to establish these programs. And, and again, it's, it's like with many other sport teams before, it's been more so of a uh, reactionary type of league. Once a problem occurs, then we try to fix it. So now they're trying to build a standard, and, and it's needed. That would imply a bit of optimism, yep. maybe. Because it used to be with a common approach is there's an incident, we have a response. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about something that's more proactive. Yeah. So do you think we have reason to be optimistic that some of these big organizations are going to do the right thing by the players more often? Yeah, I, I believe that there should should be optimism in, in the fact that they are doing that. But but the, the, the issue is um, even taking it into all of these sport organizations that are hiring a vice president for DEI, for example, they're just thrust into the role and you're just told to figure it out. (laughs) Mm. No strategy, Mm -hmm. no, no form. And so many of these, and I've talked to several of these people before too, and we've had to sit down and actually strategize and game plan on how they should perform in their role. The, The research that should be done, the needs assessment, the SWOT analyses, all of these things that should occur in order to understand the unique individuals within the space. And not a lot of DEI professionals in sport leagues have that opportunity. And so what happens then six months after they hire, they leave to go somewhere else where they feel Hmm. a little bit more supported, a little bit more appreciated. And so there's, again, there's optimism that the organizations are now talking about trying to fix the issues the the pessimistic side then would be um okay it's great that you're talking about it but you're not interested in change management you're not interested in actually pursuing the things that will bring about a new trajectory within the organization and that's the problem that we see and that's why it's going to take a few years for most of this stuff to even make a dent in Hmm. tangible social change Yeah, I think of the owners. I go to the top. And I think I look at the owners for the most part, and I see old-time, white, supportive of the system, and i.e. supportive of systemic racism. And I think that's a hard mountain to climb when you have that kind of owner at the top. No matter how many DEI people you hire and support you might give them, you still have that person at the top. So do you think there will only be real change when we see a more representative ownership system? Yes, absolutely. Uh, That's one of the things um, that needs to shift, you know, as we move forward. And we think about Michael Jordan, who is now in talks of selling the Charlotte Hornets. Hmm. Okay, so if if that happens, then look at where the NBA um, is going to be. We think about owners such as Dan Gilbert, who when LeBron left Cleveland, you know, he was – oh my God, you're leaving us. I built this franchise around you and now you leave us for him to go to Miami and then to come back. And then he welcomes him back in open arms. But 
you just burned his jerseys just a few years ago. (laughs) So, you know, but that then shows the power of the owner. You know, LeBron is in the twilight of his career. He's going to be done. His son is going to come in. But Dan Gilbert, uh, Jerry Jones of the Dallas Cowboys, (laughs) they're going to be here to stay. And they're just going to pass that down to their families. And Mm -hmm. so... That's the structure that needs to be amended. Um, we hmm. think about the Denver Broncos um, when they were on the block to be sold. And we had black leaders such as Byron Allen and others who put their name um, in the sort of raffle to uh-huh. buy the team. But then you had the Walmart family just swoop in. And how could you deny that family in many cases? So, the structures of ownership are going to take a long time, unfortunately, mm-hmm. to change. Um, but what is good in the meanwhile is if we look into positions such as the presidents of teams, general managers, of course, coaches. Um, if we begin to see um, those movements happen and we begin to see how those particular people in those places actually have a lot of power to make changes, then we can get closer and closer to the step of the ownership box. But until then, again, we're going to still see the issues. We're going to still see the struggles as we move forward. So often comes from the top. Yeah. Let's talk about your book for a moment. Uh, What has been the best way you found to promote it? How are people hearing about it? Yeah. So, you know, um, I have a great publicist uh, and she, uh, her name is Nanda Dassault and she um, helps me in navigating uh, the media landscape as to who to reach out to, um, who to talk to. And, um, you know, what we found was that uh, sending uh, the book out, um, of course, through uh, PR releases to universities Uh, That's been a big place um, to libraries who are all trying to understand, again, how sports um, and politics go together, um, how they will no longer, you know, stay apart as the world has wanted it to. And so we we focus on reaching out to those particular entities, Um, of course, media organizations that are seeing how, for example, the National Hockey League is having a diversity issue hmm. um, in their hiring practices and how they've kind of get ridden, have gotten rid of some of their, their thought processes about diversity because of uh, the Florida issue that they had. And so, you know, we um, maximize all of those types of outlets where people are wanting to really understand how sport Um, and society have been together for many years. Um, Various social media outlets, uh, again, newspapers, universities in particular, Mm -hmm. uh, and these types of podcasts are are where we're disseminating the information about the book. Often we think about books as it's a bestseller, boom, goes to the top, and then it often disappears. Yeah. uh, Because that's the cycle that a lot of these things are in. Right. But libraries, universities, these are places that are going to need that book for a long time. Right. And it has a real long life there as a textbook, as a resource. Mm -hmm. 
So it's, I think it's interesting to think about those places instead of the kind of bright and shiny object of the top of the bestseller lists. Yeah, um, because just here over the next few months, even this past month and, and, and up until this summer, um, you know, I've been lecturing at several universities and uh, sport academic conferences and, and, you know, talking about um, this topic, the sport justice movement and the sport justice movement in and of itself, as I call it, is, again, a recognizing that the sport and politics arena was even out well before the civil rights movement. We're talking about a few years after the Civil War, all the way up to today. So it's been a big, you know, large fabric of, of the U.S. Um, and how we've lived our lives. And so um, going around to different universities, um, keynoting uh, sports psychology conferences, talking about this work. Um, is is has been great for me in, in spreading this message and to see that people didn't really understand the history of sports and society um, is also a great way to get into further discussion. So it's it's great. If someone were doing a social issue kind of a book, or if someone were starting to write or think about promoting their social action book. What's the best piece of advice you would have for them to get it out there? Yeah, I will have them uh, really do thorough research. You know, um, there are a lot of things that have happened, you know, over the course of our society. So if we're talking about, uh, let's say that somebody wants to take the angle of women in sports exclusively um, to write something about that and the Me Too movement, for example, then you not only would want to of course, understand when the Me Too movement sort of came about, but you would want to take um, a lengthier historical understanding of women's rights issues, things that they had to deal with at least 100 years ago, um, in order to have us understand why the things of today are necessary to talk about, particularly as we are in an age where the court of public opinion matters a lot to how we change and how technology, again, such as social media, has has sort of uh, fast forwarded our ways of understanding and thinking. You know, not just the Pony Express years ago that sent out letters, but now we can, <laughs> you know, you can click on your on your um, mouse and have a thing delivered the next day or, or the same day, according to Amazon. So the way we see life now is great. But you need to take that historical context in order to bring us around to where what we should focus on now. That is the, I think, the best way to approach that type of writing. It's the antidote to the hot take. Yes. The endless hot take. Absolutely. Have you been challenged for your facts and for the premise of the book? And I'm thinking of the 1619 project when that first came out and still... You know, the professor who put that out has had a, a lot of almost vicious pushback against the facts yeah. in that storyline. So have you had a challenge there? You know, not really. Um, I have not mm. seen um, a, a, a lot of challenge. Uh, and I think really because there hasn't been a lot of work that has gone back to that much in the history of sports and society. And as, as an academic, <laughs> my, my, uh, I guess my main job description is to conduct research and to understand the mm. facts and read thoroughly. 
Um, that's why this book is, is pretty much loaded with uh, one of the largest bibliographies that some people <laughs> may have witnessed because right. um, I, I made sure I spent months um, researching and reading before the writing process began. And so in, in uh, essentially what I'm saying is there's not a lot that people can refute relative to the mm-hmm. facts of, mm-hmm. of the book. Now, if anything, there's just been people who will say, ah, I, I don't care about all of that. I just want to go to a game. I want to be entertained. I want to escape the realities of the world. And we get that. Her sport is an entertaining, entertaining factor in our, in our society. However, these athletes are human. <laughs> they have to go home to their families at the end of the day. They have to deal with a lot. So it's necessary for us to see all of that. And that's really, again, the only pushback that I've gotten, but it's rare. You can find Dr. Anderson's book, The Black Athlete Revolt, The Sport Justice Movement in the Age of uh, Black Lives Matter on Amazon, wherever you buy books online or off. And what uh, social media handles and contacts should we share for you when people want to find you? Sure. So um, you can go to my website. It's uh, S-H-A-U-N. Mark, M-A-R-Q, Anderson, A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N.com. On Instagram and Twitter, it's Sean Mark Speaks. Um, on Facebook, it's Sports Doc and the letter A after that. And on LinkedIn, you can find me, uh, Sean Mark Anderson, Ph.D. Um, I am usually all over those uh, social media sites putting out not only this work, um, but the inspiration factors behind writing. Um, I also talk about myself as a burgeoning gardener. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you'll find pretty much anything of uh, my life going on on those places. Is there anything that uh, we forgot to talk about that you wanted to cover? You know, I, I just want to um, emphasize that we see sports, again, as this entertaining uh, platform. But we can't get mad at athletes who continuously live in the realm of sport politics because in 2015, um, the United Nations uh, designated sports as one of its vehicles to engage their sustainable development goals. And so if anybody doesn't know what those are, uh, these are the goals that the United Nations established. Uh, Some of them are the eradication of poverty, human rights, Um, community sustainability, you know, equality, um, they put these as the key components to the way that businesses should operate. Why? By having the goals to eradicate many of these issues by 2030. And they designated sports as one of those vehicles. So it's, it's, again, it's, it's a global thought process now. And it's, it's global in its politics, it's global in its uh, communication, it's global in the business side of, of everything. So we can no longer sit here and say that sport and politics is, is this taboo topic or this just run-of-the-mill language that's out there. No, it's an official platform with the United Nations, and we have to treat it as such. Thanks so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Future X Podcast. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google, or anywhere fine podcasts appear in your feed. Post a comment on Apple Podcasts, and we'll read it on the show.
For more info about FutureX, visit futurex.studio.